Amen. You may be seated. You can turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. I realize we, are, we just began a series in Nehemiah, um, but this week's been a, a, a bit rough on me emotionally and physically, and um, I needed to go to a familiar passage. Um, and so this was something that I've preached on eight years ago, actually, when I was an assistant for church planting at Sierra View Presbyterian Church. So for the handful of you that might have been there, I think eight years is long enough, a sufficient time for it to fully escape your, all of your short-term and long-term memory at this point. Considering I had forgotten about it, that's probably good. Um, but Daniel chapter 7, it's an important chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters of the Old Testament, maybe my favorite. It's all-encompassing. Um, and I kind of was interested in Daniel and Revelation, uh, kind of deeply interested in that uh, younger, when I was in you know, maybe high school age, um, almost became an obsession for me, uh, eschatology was. Right around that time, the Left Behind series had come out, and I was devouring that book and just reading it like it was not fiction, reading it like it was uh, a picture of what was actually going to happen. And in fact, the book is intended to be read somewhat like that as a possible uh, portrayal of what the end times would be. But about halfway through that series, my, I started having questions about the, my eschatology and, and challenges that I couldn't quite answer. And it got to the point where I just sort of wanted to abandon eschatology altogether, just not even take the time to, to study it. Um, you know, there's bigger things. There's more pressing needs that we have. There are people dying in their sin, and they need to hear the gospel. Why We should be focusing on just preaching the gospel, proclaiming uh, the grace that is available, and, and not trying to f- solve all the riddles and puzzles that we have in eschatology. Let's focus on the essentials. And so I do recognize there's some value to that, right? End times doctrine is not central uh, to our faith, and yet it's there in God's word. It's his revelation to us. There's a purpose in, in, that God has in, in revealing it to us. And while we have disagreements, even among ourselves, about how we should read it, uh, those disagreements do- doesn't mean that, that one person is unsaved because they read it differently or that they're unwelcome in the church. You've got to find a, a church that has the exact same eschatology. Um, in all likelihood, you'll find one that might have that, but they don't practice other things that you would, you would desire. So you're not going to find that perfect church. Right? So differences of opinion will abound among solid, reformed Christians even. And we need to respect those differences and appreciate them, in fact. But that doesn't mean we should shrink back from studying God's word. We went through the book of Revelation we, we didn't shrink back during that, and, and as we read Daniel chapter 7, we won't shrink back from the challenging topic that's before us. But I do want to point out at least three ways that oftentimes eschatology is read or apocalyptic literature is read that is unhelpful. One is to, to read it as if it's a detailed blueprint, like it's giving you this map of the future that you can have a one-for-one correlation, that there's a perfect chronology that's being laid out in the book of Revelation or in the book of Daniel, that you can, if you just, if you just do the math right, if, if you just 
you know, have the right uh, spectacles on, you'll, you'll figure out the clues and you'll, and you'll know the, you'll put the puzzle piece together and there will be nothing missing, right? That, that is, is not likely to be God's intent in, esca- in giving us uh, revelation, to have that perfect blueprint, that detailed br- blueprint, right? And, and what happens when you read God's word in that way is what really um, discouraged me because oftentimes when I was reading God's word, it was, it was just about solving a riddle, right? Predicting what the end would look like. And I was, like I said, obsessed with that. But then, then you, you have the other side of the spectrum where, where people kind of read Revelation and eschatological passages, passages about the end times, as if it's just completely detached from history. It has nothing to do with it. It's poetic. It's just fantasy. It's almost like reading a really good sci-fi novel, right? And, and, it, and there's, no, there's nothing that actually um, ties it to reality, that ties it even to the spiritual reality and there's this just kind of a a poetic license depicting good versus evil and it's meant to stir up emotions now again there's some value in that because God's word is meant to stir up emotion in us just like when we read the the psalms we're meant to have those same emotions as we come before him in prayer but that is not the only purpose obviously in revelation and Daniel or any other apocalyptic passage of scripture. Oftentimes, if you take that detached view, then it undermines scripture's relevance for all of life. Thirdly, right, we can abandon uh, interpretation altogether. Just avoid revelation. Or you might read it, but not expect to get anything out of it. Uh, You read Daniel, but it's just so confusing that you just sort of set it aside as soon as you're done. Don't really take the time to meditate upon it. It's relevant, but it's, it's just too confusing to really figure out. And so you become overwhelmed by all the various interpretations that are going on. And so your goal, really, when you read Revelation, is just to, it's just to keep calm and carry on, right? Try not to let it affect you too much. I'd say that's unhelpful in the end. That's not, that's not the goal of these passages. And as we consider Daniel 7 we'll see that Daniel himself is alarmed. He's troubled. He's not dis- disengaged as he sees these visions. He is emotionally affected by them. He's not left the same. And at the same time, he's not given all the answers. He's not given a detailed blueprint of what's going to happen in the future, which is partly why he's troubled. And even as God gives him an interpretation of that vision that we'll read in Daniel 7, the interpretation itself leaves some vagueness. There's not a, there, it's not a perfect blueprint. And so we should understand, right, that when we read God's word, we should be emotionally affected by it. We shouldn't be indifferent toward it in any way. And even though we're not given all the answers, our heart is burdened by what God has revealed to us. So let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding as we read this important passage of scripture. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this chapter and what it has to teach us this morning. Lord, it is a a word of encouragement for us. It might be a word of challenge for us. It might be convicting for many. 
But Lord, I pray that we would be in the end comforted by the truth of your sovereignty and of the grace that is held out to us in Christ. And we pray that you would be lifted high, that we would come humbly to sit at your feet even now, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear that truth and soften our hearts to receive it and to respond in obedience for your glory. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So we are going to read this whole chapter. It's lengthy, um, but uh, I think it's important and we'll... We won't have to uh, read through it all in detail as I'm preaching through it, but follow along with me as I read Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancients of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, 
and which devoured and broke into pe- uh, broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given over or given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion And the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed. But I kept the matter in my heart. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, the book of Daniel comes during the time of Babylonian exile. And uh, this chapter is a transition point in the book. The first six chapters is really historical narrative. You hear about Daniel and his friends and his companions and, and how God preserves and protects them in exile. Chapters 7 through 12 are apocalyptic in nature. They're apocalyptic literature. So it's a significant transition which demands a new reading strategy. We cannot expect that precise chronology to maintain throughout chapters 7 through 12. It speaks in metaphors and similes. It teaches by analogy. And so you have to be cautious with the details. Images communicate imprecisely. Think about a painting or a picture. It's, it's, It's a reflection of reality, but it's not reality. You can't step into that painting or picture. It's a reflection of that. So it paints and it 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 picture something imprecisely, but it is meant to evoke powerful emotions, meant to stir us up and to cause us to either trust or to doubt or to have fear or to be encouraged, to be strengthened. The scope in Daniel 7 begins to broaden as well, whereas the first six chapters are talking about a present darkness or a darkness that was felt by those in Babylon during that exile. Maybe those who are you know, presently going through some kind of darkness similar can benefit as well from, from an analogy of, of their experience, but it's depicting a very present darkness that they're going through, whereas chapter 7 is talking about a future darkness. Right? It's portraying the end times. You have a a temporary deliverance that's reflected in chapters 1 through 6. Over and over again, God rescues and saves his covenant people, Daniel and his friends. And then you have eternal deliverance being depicted here in chapter 7. So the scope of Daniel broadens here in this chapter. You might say that the first six chapters are about how to stand alone as exemplified in the lives of Daniel and his friends. 
now you see why it's worthwhile to stand alone, why it's worthwhile for all believers to stand alone if called to. So the first point I want us to consider from this passage includes verses 1 through 8, as well as the interpretation in verses 15 through 28. And it's worldly chaos. That's your first point, worldly chaos. Why was Daniel anxious and alarmed? It mentions it twice there in verse 15 and 28. Why was he anxious and alarmed? Well, it's helpful to recognize that the interpretation that's given at the, that second half of the chapter does not include an interpretation of verses 9 through 14. It focuses on those first eight verses. What alarmed him was the beasts that were rising up out of the sea. What alarmed him was what that represented. Okay, so, so we need to understand something of these first eight verses. And let's begin with this first image of the sea, verse 2. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds came up out of the sea, or sorry, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out. So in, in verse 2, it's just the, mentions the sea that's being stirred up by four winds. So the sea, in biblical, as well as in ancient Near Eastern uh, literature, which would have been contemporary with Daniel and his companions this time, the sea symbolizes chaos. It symbolizes evil. It symbolizes decreation. When you think about the flood, the flood waters, what did they do? They decreate God's good creation. They decreate, right? Recreation begins again as Noah and his family step off the ark and are given new mandates, right, for him and his family to follow. It's another opportunity, right, to honor the Lord with their lives. So the sea represents this decreation. It's a depiction of godlessness and depravity and judgment. You have in ancient Near Eastern creation narratives uh, you have several examples of this. One would be the Enuma Elish, and I mention this not because I think it's accurate or, or believable, but because this would have been the context in which Daniel and his friends were living in Babylon, and they would have understood the sea to represent this kind of chaos and evil. Well, in the Enuma Elish, you have a, a picture of Marduk defeating Tiamat, who is the goddess of the sea, but Tiamat remains alive and is always opposed to Marduk and his plans. Right? And so the pantheon of gods that's represented uh, in the Enuma Elish, the one that represents the sea, is one who represents chaos, destruction, decreation, constantly opposed to the will of the pantheon, the, the, the rest of the gods. Right? She's always stirring up corruption and division and chaos among the pantheon. And so what do we see before we get to these uh, em, uh, emerging beasts that are coming out of the sea, notice what it is that's stirring up the sea. You might think it's the beasts that are coming out. That's what's causing the waters to, to, to get fierce, but it's actually the four winds of heaven, it says. The four winds of heaven are stirring up the sea. Implicit in that, and if you know Hebrew, wind and spirit are the same word. And so oftentimes the wind is a representation of the opposite of the sea, right? It's of God's sovereign control. 
So God is ordaining the seas to be stirred up. God is in control. Even, in the, even though the result is chaos and corruption, there remains one constant truth that God is sovereign over it all. And God can calm the sea when he pleases, as we see his son do. So what do we see in the beasts? Well, the beasts are raging against God's created order. They are perversions of his creation. Right? Each beast is a representation of God's created order. You have each successive beast, in fact, becoming grow more and more grotesque. The first beast has human-like features, and yet after that it gets worse. Right? There's, they're less human. They become more and more terrifying so that when you get to the fourth beast, it's not even described as an animal. It just says that it's so terrifying in its, in its ability to devour and trample everything in its path. There's a parallel here between Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel 2, you have the statue right, that Nebuchadnezzar has placed for people to worship. You have the head of gold, the torso of silver, the midriff of bronze, and you have the legs and iron that are uh, legs that are made of iron and clay. And each one of those represents a succeeding nation that would come in opposition to God and his will. Well, you have the same thing here. In fact, the first one is almost undoubtedly Babylon. There's really no confusion or disagreement, no significant disagreement about that. The head of gold, and um, Daniel says, you are the head of gold to Nebuchadnezzar. So we know that the gold head represented Babylon, uh, the king of Babylon. And now you have here this beast that's rising out of the sea that is represented as a lion with wings of an eagle. Well, in Jeremiah 49, verses 19 through 22, it, it depicts Babylon as both a lion and an eagle. And so this was imagery that the Bible uses to depict Babylon. But what about this idea that the animal sort of becomes like a human, its wings are plucked and it stands up on feet? Well, there, there are human-like qualities also in Nebuchadnezzar that, that are deteriorated by his pride and his sin. Remember, he becomes in judgment from God like a beast. And it's not until his humiliation, not until he repents of that, that God restores his humanity. He becomes like a beast and an animal. So there's, there's this constant tension here between uh, animal beast-like qualities, some, someone becoming less human because of their own corruption, because of their sin. And so you, let's, let's carry on. I'll, I'll pick that back up in a moment. But you move on to the next one. You have the, the torso of silver in the statue in Daniel 2, reflected here by the second beast as a bear. Again, representing, if you think of the nation that would follow Babylon, you'd have Medo-Persia. You have the midriff of bronze and the leopard with wings and four heads, representing Greece. You have the legs of iron and clay representing Rome, and the fourth beast with iron teeth and ten horns. But what happens in that sec in Daniel two? The key is not so much the the various uh, layers of this statue, but what it is that destroys the statue. What it is that conquers these successive evil kingdoms. 
It's the rock that, cra that crashes into the feet and crumbles the entire statue. It's this picture of Christ, the Son of Man, who conquers the kingdoms, and in place of their dominion, he receives universal and everlasting dominion. So the question is, if, if all of these represent these nations that have come and gone, is all of it just a reflection of the past? Are we to just read it as God and his faithful preservation of his people today? Well, this is why I had us look at Revelation 13 earlier. Because there you see a composition of all four beasts from Daniel chapter 7. You've said, in Revelation 13, he says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns, reflecting the fourth beast in Daniel 7. Seven heads and ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw like a leopard, or that the beast that I saw was like a leopard. That's the third beast we see in Daniel 7. Its feet were like a bear's, the second beast. And its mouth was like a lion's mouth, the first beast. So, so what are we to take of this? Well, we have, we have in Revelation 13 a composition of the beasts of Daniel 7, which are a depiction of evil nations rising up in opposition to God and his will. The point is that there is no single nation that fulfills and finally uh, resolves all of this tension that it represents in Daniel 7. There, it, no single king or nation exhausts the meaning. While it represents Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome, it also represents other nations that have risen in opposition to God and his people. It represents every king or civil authority who stands opposed to God and his will. And so we have to understand here that the numbers that were given, like the ten horns, uh, or the number of four, the number of four beasts rising up, they're symbolic as well. Four, in Genesis chapter 2, you have four rivers in Eden, and they're extending out to the four corners of creation. The idea is that they're feeding all of God's creation, all of his earth, the rivers of Eden, and you have ten. The ten horns represents this large, unspecified number. And so, again, it's impossible to be precise with these things, to suggest that each, each animal or each beast that's rising up is this one nation or this one king. It's evil kingdoms that succeed one another until the end. It's all-encompassing. You have this little horn that's represented in verse 8. It's the last uh, aspect of the vision that troubled and alarmed Daniel. This little horn speaks proud and arrogant things. And if you read on in, in Daniel chapter 8, um, again, not a lot of people would disagree that that's a picture of Antiochus Epiphanes that's being depicted. So his reign lasted for three and a half years. And so there was an immediate fulfillment of that vision but it's partial fulfillment because we know in 1 John 2.18 that there were many antichrists, many people who would be opposed to Christ and his kingdom. You have it ultimately culminating in the man of lawlessness mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 
3. So throughout apocalyptic literature, you'll find partial initial fulfillment followed by a greater and fuller fulfillment in the eschaton at the last days or during in the last times, the latter days, which is between Christ's first and second coming. We are in those latter days now. But here's the key in the little horn's uh, description, right, this description of the little horn, his defeat is certain. It, Christ wins. We see that in, Dan, in the rest of Daniel 7, right, and that's where we pick up uh, with that vision of the ancient of days and the son of man who's given dominion. So we'll turn there next, but before we do, I do want to consider this. Where, where are you? Where, where am I? in these first eight verses. How do we apply this to ourselves? Well, I think the first may be surprising that we ourselves play a part in the reign of the prideful little horn. We're born in sin. We engage in an ongoing fight with sin for as long as we remain in this body of flesh and sin dehumanizes. It has an effect upon us that mars the image of God so that we become beast-like. And we, when we become numb in our sin, it's as if we're at least human in that time. Right, so the Antichrist is merely a picture of unhindered depravity. It's, it's merely by the grace of God that any of us are preserved from that same complete dehumanization. Okay, but primarily, I think also we're to see the Christians here, specifically in, this, in, in the verses describing the second and the fourth beast. There you see the ribs that are being devoured, and you see those who are being trampled upon by the fourth beast. It's a picture of persecution. It's a picture of tribulation and trial. Again, this is why Daniel's alarmed. This is why he's troubled, because what he sees is despair for the people of God in the future. He sees trial. He knew that greater persecution would fall upon the people of God. And I think some of us need to reflect upon his alarm by that. And even if you yourself have not experienced that kind of persecution where you felt like you're being devoured or trampled by evil we do know believers that are and we are connected in the body of christ to those believers who experience persecution and trial even today and we need to be alarmed by that we need to be crying out on their behalf to the lord for mercy and grace the last thing we can do is become indifferent to become numb to the suffering of others. And so that's the worldly chaos, and it transitions here to this image, and we'll be faster with this next section, but verses 9 through 14, the worldly chaos transitions into an image of heavenly peace. It's a picture of unshakable hope in the midst of chaos. Is that not a message we need to hear today? It's a picture of calmness, of God's glory and light and his sovereignty. In verses 9 through 10, you have this ancient of days. It's a 
It's reflecting God seated as judge, dressed in white in the purity of his holiness. Verses 11 through 12 pictures this ongoing judgment, including the final judgment that he himself brings upon corrupt and chaotic and ungodly nations who are opposed to him and his will. But the highlight, the climax of this passage really comes in verses 13 through 14, and it's the picture of the Son of Man who's given dominion. We'll read it. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man when speaking to the high priest Caiaphas in Mark 14. He is the fulfillment of this vision. And maybe you think this is a picture of the second coming, him coming on clouds, but in fact he's going to the Ancient of Days. He's riding upon the clouds. It's a picture of his ascension. It's a, what did he say right before his ascension? In Matthew 28, verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He had dominion. He has dominion even now. In Acts chapter 7, verse 56, as Stephen is being stoned to death, he has a vision of the heavenly th uh, throne room, and he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He sees him in his glory, in his dominion, and he knows that he is in sovereign control, even as he himself is being martyred, being killed. So, what's the figure? This is the figure, the Son of Man is the figure of the true man. One who was never tainted by chaos, who was never dehumanized by sin, and it's in perfect contrast to the beast. He alone is able to stand before the holiness of God and remain in his presence. The rock in Nebuchadnezzar's dream has become a man in whom the true image of God shines forth. He is what Adam was supposed to be, but failed. The Son of Man restores that image in all its beauty and splendor. And the beginning of that fulfillment is when that son was born. It was the climax of history. The ending of that fulfillment is reflected in Revelation, where all nations are the Lord's. Right? He takes dominion. He has dominion. He is reigning and ruling, and they will submit to him at the end of time. It's the culmination of the latter days. So all of it reflecting the, uh, between, the time between his first and second coming. And so really what we have in, this, in these verses is three aspects of Christ's first coming, three aspects or, or visual displays of his crucifixion, specifically God's judgment upon wicked empires. Secondly, the kingdom of Christ is established and third, the ultimate destruction of this little horn has begun. Right? The cross, the resurrection, and his ascension, it sets in motion the last days which culminates in the everlasting kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth that becomes our hope. 
So again, what about us? Well, what about us in this section? Well, we see in actually in verses 18, an important understanding, right? The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Verse 27, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Over and over again, we see because of our union with Christ, we are united to him in his reign so that we rule and reign with him. We receive the benefits of his victory achieved at the cross. So what's Daniel's point? The point is to place your hope in the only king who conquers all worldly chaos and establishes everlasting peace. Some of you are striving at what will only bring trifles of peace. You're stressed out, you're worried, and you're living, in fact, for temporary satisfaction. Your hope is maybe in particular politician. Maybe it's in a career change. Maybe your hope is in a spouse or a child or a future spouse or a future child or a better spouse or better children. The danger is this, that when one of those idols is removed, through death, unfaithfulness, loss of job, corruption, that the whole house caves in upon you, that you're devastated. You see, because all of those goals, to one degree or another, are affected by the worldly chaos, and they contribute to it. They cannot conquer chaos. They can only add to the chaos. Your hope must be, ultimately, in the only king who is capable of conquering the chaos and establishing everlasting peace. And so when we see the creation accounts that I mentioned earlier, the Enuma Elish, the ancient Near Eastern accounts, they have eternal conflict, eternal chaos, constant decreation. What do we have in scripture? We have an end to conflict depicted. We have an end to chaos and recreation that is offered The ending was set in motion at the coming of our king. Jesus Christ stepped into the chaos, and he was decreated on the cross. So that you might be recreated in him. And so you won't have all the answers, To be a Christian doesn't mean that you'll never be bothered. That you won't have suffering and sorrow. People and events will leave you alarmed and troubled, and they ought to. We don't have a blueprint for the future, but neither do we have a document that's completely detached from history either. There's a purpose behind it all, and everything points to a certain conclusion, and this passage teaches us what that is, to look up from the present chaos. 
That's all this world has to offer. And to see the peaceful, heavenly courtroom, to know that God is in control even now, in the midst of your chaos, in the midst of your trial, Christ has already won the victory on the cross, and you can take comfort knowing that right now, Christ is reigning over every square inch of creation to the four corners of the earth. Nothing is beyond his sovereign rule. And I want us to recognize one more hopeful thing that we have in Revelation. Revelation 21. It's my last thought. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. The chaos, the evil, the corruption is swallowed up by peace in the new heavens and new earth. That's our hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this chapter that can't help but to encourage the saints. Lord, we, we go through trials and tribulation and suffering and sorrow in this life, and we recognize that we contribute to it. We're partially to blame for that. But we come humbly to you, submitting to the, the one who does rule, who has sovereign authority. And we ask that you would give us that, a taste of that peace that awaits us in the new heavens and new earth. That we would even enter into that rest as we reflect upon it that as it were, we would be seated with you in the heavenlies, enjoying the presence of your spirit comforting us in the midst of affliction. And Lord, we know that in light of historical events, it's, it's likely to get worse. We pray for those who are in danger even now. Help us to not forget them in our prayers. Help us to come alongside them and to lift them up in their burdens. And to ask for your protection, your mercy and grace upon them. Lord, we know that ultimately, even if our lives are taken from us, the hope of this picture of the new heavens and new earth where chaos is and evil and corruption is done away with, or that, that that vision, that hope can never be taken away. Our bodies may be destroyed, but Lord, we will go to be with you the moment that happens. And we will enter into that new heavens and new earth behind the reigning Christ. 
So Lord, give us that peace that surpasses understanding even now. Give us that hope. Give us that strength to persevere. Help us to respond now with song to celebrate the Lord's Supper together in light of that hope. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing this psalm of response, Psalm number three, O Lord, how many are my foes? Is this a new psalm? Okay. So this is fairly new to us. We've done it once before. Um, is it a fairly easy tune, or do you want to sing through it first? You'll sing it. Okay. So we'll listen to Mark sing through one, one verse. <clears throat> 